following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. We're joined by Ellie Gilbert. How are you, Ellie? I'm good. Well, thanks for having us, Scotty. Yeah, great. Now, you're a, uh, you're a filmmaker and uh, an activist on things Aboriginal. Well, I'm married into the Aboriginal world, so yes, once you know what's going on in this country, you have to pursue it. You yep. do, you do, definitely. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess um, just to introduce the, the whole thing, we're going to cover a couple of subjects today, but uh, I guess to introduce the whole Aboriginal thing, uh, I guess Aborigines were here first, right? Yes. Yes, yes, well, that's good to get that out of the way. Now, um, the, uh, the, uh, the colonialisation of, of, of Australia was sort of done with a, a certain spirit, and I know you've been all around the country talking to uh, Aboriginal groups all over the place as part of your filmmaking. Are there any sort of common stories about uh, the, the white presence as it came in and made itself felt and how it did that? Yes, Um and I really think this is what Australian society has to come to terms with, is the history of this country. And until we deal with that, we can't go forward in a wholesome way. And probably listeners might know, but in case you don't, my old husband was Kevin Gilbert, who uh, died 18 years ago this week, which is a long time ago. Mm. But he was uh, his strength, in a way, was to talk about what people didn't want to talk about and uh, he ended up writing the in a way for him the definitive work on Aboriginal sovereignty because he saw that was the Achilles heel of the Australian government that the Australia does not really have a legal sovereignty to this land because as he said you can't take a land by genocide and massacre so the common theme across this country, wherever you go, is genocide and massacre, and it's a pretty horrendous story. And we know some historians have tried to whitewash it, but in actual fact, in the Aboriginal world, it's written in the ground and it's written in the spirit. And there are many Aboriginal people who see that spirit world and are haunted by it and can see what happened under that church that was built on a massacre site or that hospital that was built on another massacre site and often you'll find major institutional buildings are put in these sorts of places either on sacred sites or where something pretty horrible's happened um, and when you go through the documents uh, this is why um, I think Australia is since the UN Declaration on Indigenous Rights has sort of been, you know, crafted, Australia realised that um, they weren't in a very good position. So I think we're witnessing a very subtle but all-out effort to stop self-determination for Aboriginal people because that's the big threat for this country. Mm. And the populations are building up and um, Australia doesn't have a legal footing in sovereignty and they know it. That's why they're trying to stop self-determination. Yeah, I guess you mentioned it was sort of like a, uh, a bit of a smash and grab sort of approach and to smash the Aborigines and 
grab... Uh, what were they grabbing? Land. Sort of the land. Land. And through the land resources. Mm, so that's but, but there's a sort of a, a deeper significance because often colonisation allowed the existing cultures to persist, right? And then you had this overarching colonial power. But in this country, for some reason, it was a war of extermination. And if you look at the spirituality of the whole thing, I think they came thinking they could just Christianise and then they realised these people weren't going to Christianise. <laughs> a lot weren't going to Christianise. And Gribble was at uh, Warren Gester, which is Darlington Point on the Murrumbidgee. And when you read his diaries, and that's Wiradjuri, who were coming and going, he called the, a lot of them rice Christians because they'd come in for a feed and a rest and then move on again. And he couldn't, he couldn't convert them. And he ended up having a nervous breakdown and whatever. <laughs> so that bit didn't work. But what's happened too is the historians, I think, are responsible as well for people not knowing the true history. Because if you open the historical records of Australia, which I did one day, not being a historian, I started on page one. Page one, it says that Philip's commission for 1788 was to come out under the rules and disciplines of war. That's on page one. On page 12, he was told to conciliate the affections of the natives. And you can't go to war against nobody. So they can't say it was terra nullius, they didn't know someone was here. And they can't say Aboriginal people don't have sovereignty because you can't go to war. Perhaps it was against... war on drugs or war on terror. Well, it was a war of terror. <laughs> it was a war of terror. It was a war yeah. of terror. And uh, Watkin Tench said that the um, policy was to instill in them a terror. So terrorism stems, in this continent, stems from the invading power. Mm, goes way back. Whereas now, if any Aboriginal people stood up, like it's happening in other countries of the world, they'd be called terrorists, not people defending their homeland. <laughs> they certainly <laughs> would. They certainly would. Yes. Now, um, I guess you, you spoke of sovereignty before. Um, I hear that a lot in relation to Aboriginal stuff, and every now and then in relation to the law or something. Have you got a, a good definition of sovereignty? Um. It's really the key question now. Everybody's tried every other avenue. Our old Kevin said it's the one we're going to win with. And sovereignty is, by definition, the supreme ruling power. A lot of people associate it with kings and queens, but it can go much deeper than that. So it's like that. it goes back to that spiritual bond to the country. And if people care to look at um, Kevin's book, Aboriginal Sovereignty, Justice, the Law and Land, it's on the internet under the Institute of Aboriginal Studies website, aatsis.gov.au, and you go into library and you'll, you'll find it there. Um, and, but he looked at all the different definitions of sovereignty. So it's really the, the ruling, the source of the ruling power. So I guess I'm trying to figure that in my mind. It's like the... Uh the, the top, the, the supreme law, whether it's white law or black law, it's just the yeah. law that... And when we did research in London and we were in the um, public archives 
and you had to sort of start somewhere so we just pulled a number out of the hat said 1837 and they go oh that's in the vault and we said oh well that's the one we want (laughs) (laughs) and uh, it turned out to be Queen Victoria's signature for when she came to power and all it was was she claimed her divine right to rule and she was witnessed by a few men, and she smudged her signature. (laughs) 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 But basically, sovereignty, under international law, sovereignty can only transfer in certain ways. And one one is by um, annexation, one is by treaty, or... Um, and you've got to look at the international law at the time that people came here, so it's seven, eight, 1770s. And, and if the land was empty, it could be taken by discovery. And that's why they tried to say Australia was terra nullius and an empty land when it wasn't. They knew jolly well it wasn't. And you look at Philip's journals, at one point he's saying, oh, they're more here than we imagined. Yeah. You know what I mean? Was Philip so, the first governor? Yeah. 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 And what uh, sort of before Philip and his uh, his mob came along? What what were the sort of uh, what were the sort of organisational principles? I imagine they were rather various. Well, as you know, it's not recorded, hmm. so it's just it's going on um, oral tradition and continuing culture, and in in essence. Um, it appears there were like 500 languages, like languages and art form in this continent, and there are people who speak 10 languages, 20 languages. You know, I always, uh, I always get a bit amused when I think of how uh, how monolingual I am, and uh, many of us white folks are. <laughs> these uh, black folks who get denigrated as being silly are talking all these different languages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and how many how many um, mainstream Australians really bother to try and learn the, the languages? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some languages are so old and so beautiful, you know. Yes, yeah. And Howard went and tried to destroy even the bilingual education system. Yeah, which well, is that's just uh... it's a crime. It's a crime. What's going on? Yep. Still happening at the moment, isn't yeah. it? Mm. Yeah. Was there much of a change in your view from when uh, Howard was in to uh, now the, the Labour All Party's in? No, no, sadly. No. <laughs> because, uh, well, to even take the Northern Territory intervention, that was bipartisan. And Labour came into power and they've kept it going. Je- Jenny Macklin, I, I just think she doesn't get it. You know, I don't understand how anyone can carry on and do what she's doing and then Tony Abbott doesn't get it either. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very sad because we're dealing with some of the most intelligent and creative cultures in the world. And right now this society is trying to grind them down, whereas it doesn't work. No. They keep reassembling, and that's why at Easter time <laughs> there's going to be um, a big gathering uh, of people again at Easter on the issue of sovereignty because people are realising, even non Aboriginal people are realising 
that that's the way to go. A lot of these um, people on the land trying to fight this gas industry and the coal industry have um, contacted Michael Anderson, who's pulling this New Way Summit together at Easter. And I was talking to him not long ago, and he's saying he's being contacted from people all across Australia, realising that the only way they're going to be able to go forward is to recognise that Aboriginal people hold the sovereignty of this country and then we take it from there, which is exactly what our old Kevin was saying as well, to build a proper foundation in this country. We have to go right back and start from sovereignty and um, the laws in place at the time in the 1770s enabled the right thing to be done and it wasn't done. So it's all the way back to negotiating a treaty, people healing enough out of this genocide to be able to negotiate a treaty on fair terms and not be just totally done over. Um, so there's a lot happening, but over the country, the nations are rebuilding, reforming. The one good thing about native title, which is racist, but the one good thing about it is everybody belongs somewhere and it's encouraged people to identify back to the country they belong to. And out of that is coming this nation building again, which is the sovereignty argument, but people are forming that the nations are sort of regenerating. And that's the process which enables the whole sovereignty question to come to the fore, I think, mm. <laughs> only an opinion. <laughs> So, um, so I guess to hark right back to the, the, the colonialism, I can't sort of get this out of my head somehow. It's a, uh, the, a book I read lately was the, uh, Taming the Great South Land by, uh, by a fellow called Bill Lyons. I'm sure some of our listeners will know if you, if you don't know him, but, um, a very interesting history of the, the, it's like an economic history of Australia and it, just brings out how entrepreneurial and uh, and just smash and grab the whole thing was with the the nature all around and it was in the middle of the massive sealing and whaling times when they were just depleting the oceans of everything and the land of everything and the logging and mining and going off completely and uh, the attitudes today are still very much the same as you can see with the coal seam gas there fracking the rock with all sorts of wild and wonderful chemicals in the water and and the uh oh what am i thinking of here the uh the in-situ uranium mining <laughs> leaching that they're uh, they've approved i don't know if they're doing it yet yes they are yeah, yeah yeah and um all sorts of things like that so i guess that that can move us on to uh an issue that's fairly close to your heart there's a a little lake out somewhere northwest of here that's Lake Cal, which yeah. is right in the middle of New South Wales. That's my husband's country. And uh, once again, it's smashing grab. They're um, extracting the gold. But the gold mine, the actual pit itself, goes into the lake, uh, which is an ephemeral lake, and right now it is a lake, even though the mining company said it would never flood again. It has. And... This lake sits in the bottom of a big saucer of land and connects to the Kalara, the Lachlan River. And they're bringing in 6,090 tonnes of cyanide a year into the river system. 
and uh, it's used to detach the gold from the rock. Um, and it's a Canadian company. They're very good at PR. They're very good at um, forcing people to sign. So uh, we now know from only five signed for the mine and they weren't authorised by the rest of the traditional owners. And one lady has admitted that they were told um, if they don't sign they'll get nothing. And then they're forced, um, they're told that, well, you won't be able to stop at any rate, so you may as well just take what you can. And these are the sort of tactics they use. And then uh, a lot of the old people in Condoblin, that's where the main community is, wrote affidavits and we've run court cases for about 10 years now. But what I found really insidious was that um, to get someone to actually do an affidavit is quite a major step. And they would then target their grandchildren. Everyone's in poverty. They get the grandchildren out there picking up artefacts and whatever. And the price that's paid in a community when a sacred site's destroyed, and I don't think mainstream Australia quite understands it, the price a community pays when a sacred site's destroyed is often the main traditional owners die. Um, it's, it's a whole cultural thing. And um, it goes on down the generations, but also at a place like Lake Cowell, as one of the old men says, there's good and bad out there. So when you dis disturb and desecrate a site like that, you're actually stirring up a whole lot of old and ancient energies that have to be put back to rest, and they're, <laughs> they're not at rest at the moment. <laughs> no, the genie is out of the bottle, so yeah, to speak. exactly right, yes. Yeah, so um, I guess just to... Uh, I think the, the main... I guess it's environmental and, and it's a people issue as well. well like they're not linked, but uh, the main link there is uh, water, of course. And you, you say it's a it's an ephemeral lake. What's an ephemeral lake? Ephemeral lake is um, when the mine was um, just being talked about. Uh, the Department of Mineral Resources and the mining company just said, "Oh, it's in a dry old paddock," and that's what it looked like. Um, but when the when the rains come and it fills, it's a jewel in the landscape. Um, so it works on a 20-year cycle. I looked up all the information there was on it early on. It's a 20-year cycle, so it goes sort of 10 years wet, 10 years dry, 10 years wet, 10 years dry. It's quite a shallow lake. Sometimes um, the water just gets blown from <laughs> the wind changes. The water gets blown from one end of the lake to the other when it's wow. not totally full. And so that's pretty flat then. It's very, very flat. And I know people who've been fishermen. Uh, one old guy said, you know, in the old days, you put a net out because it used to uh, provide 20% of the inland fish catch in New South Wales, yellow belly, Murray cod, yabbies, all those sorts of things. But he said, you put a net out and you go back the next day and the wind had changed and that would be high and dry and the water would be down the other side <laughs> the end of the lake. Um, but because it's in the saucer of land, when the big wet comes, which I believe we're building up to, the whole country goes under. So when Oxley was exploring, he thought he'd found the inland sea. And uh, my old sister-in-law um, ended up living with an old man who's passed on now, but he worked for that country, old Aboriginal Wiradjuri man, and I said to him, Uncle Gundy, I said, where does the, how far does the water go? And he said, um, 
Well, it goes to the railway line, and that's sitting behind the west of the tailings dam. Uh, so if you can picture the lake in the middle, and the pit goes into the lake, and then west of that, by three kilometres, are the tailings dams. Behind the dams are the railway lines, so the water goes up to there, and then up to Manor Mountain, which is 20, 30 k's away, the whole country goes under. And the mining companies built a like a levee around the front of the mine into the lake bed. But I actually believe when the whole country goes under, the water's going to come in from behind. I don't th really think they've estimated what's going to go on. So we're sort of in the process of setting up some water testing, which um, is a bit late, whereas uh, I really focused on the Aboriginal side, hoping environmentalists will come on board and do that stuff because I'm a trained ecologist, ecologist, so I know what's possible. But it sort of didn't happen, but we're kicking it off now. So it won't be like a baseline of the water, but mm -hmm. we're calling it a snapshot of what will be in the water. Um, uh, just to get a handle on it, because the tailings walls haven't breached yet, but they're unlined. And because uh, we've done a lot of court cases, we get information from that. And they actually monitor the seepage out of the tailings dams towards the pit. So they're admitting that stuff's on the move. Same as with the dust. Um, they collect dust samples. And in one instance, they were saying, oh, well, the, the levels of, I think it was aluminium and cadmium, are, are very high. But that's because they were contaminated by the paintbrush that was used to clean out the vessel. So, so it's time there's sort of yeah. some independent uh, monitoring going on. And Yeah, um, so um, maybe just very quickly go through the uh, the, the process. They, uh, they stick their shovel in the ground and, and dig out a few tonnes per shovel full. What happens to the, the, the ore after they've sort of dug it out of the big pit? Well, it's, there's a great big thing called Jaws. That's the excavator and it goes into trucks and then it's trucked off to a crusher. Uh, where the rock's crushed, and then it gets into like vats and sprayed with cyanide, and that that releases the gold, and the waste product um, goes on a conveyor belt up to the tailing dams, and they're two. So when one's dry, that's the sludge, the toxic sludge, because this contains cyanide, sort of breakdown product products. Um, the, the dried sludge is then used to build the walls of the tailings dam. So then that becomes the next wet one, and the other one is dry, and then the walls are built up. So, it, it, And they're trying to expand the mine right now, and that's what we're <laughs> posing at the moment. Uh, because if the expansion goes ahead, those walls end up 15 storeys high, like a 15-storey block of flats mm -hmm. left on the floodplain forever. In the food basket of New South Wales and Australia. So it, it, it's an insane process. And you've only got to look at a country town like Captain's Flat to see the communities left with the damage. These companies go. And um, somewhere like Captain's Flat, when that rain that flooded the Queen Bean River, that damn wall was on red alert because the water was coming over. And it's an old dam left over from the gold mine. And inside that, reservoir are some of the most toxic water in New South Wales and had the dam wall breached, Captain's Flat would have been flooded by this 
um, toxic soup. And Which people would have been have... lucky to get out in time. Yeah, yes. yeah. Well, I guess that would uh, would flow downstream. On the Malongolo. On the Malongolo, which that's goes right. into the Murrumbidgee, which goes into the Murray. That's right. right. And I was talking to um, an ecologist recently. He said when it did flood in previously, there was this sort of swathe of death because the top, the water is so toxic it was just killing what was in its path. Mm. Now, the, you mentioned in the process there that the, the cyanide is uh, sprinkled through the, the crushed rock and it liberates the the gold from the chemically sort of frees it up. Does it does it also free up anything else or is it just gold specific? Um, no, it, I'm, not, I'm not a chemist, but um, I think the cyanide targets the gold, but there are obviously other chemicals in there. And when you dig up these old rocks and expose them to air, one of the chemicals that's released is arsenic. Mm -hmm. And we now have um, people who've worked, you know, with the National Toxic Network and a whole group of people. Um, out of that has come this National Pollutant Inventory. And it's actually accessible on the website if people want to look at it. It's www.mpi.gov.au. And a mining company has to actually admit what's being emitted each year, uh, what's being emitted and what's being transferred. And when you look at the figures for Lake Cow in middle of New South Wales, they're extraordinary figures. So arsenic alone, arsenic and compounds, 670 tonnes a year of arsenic. 670 tonnes every year. Every year. Yeah. Well, we're, um, we're looking at the 2009-2010, but the year before, the, the numbers are similar. And, I mean, arsenic's a cumulative poison. It goes up the food chain and it's cumulative. So eagles and the big meat eaters in the, in the landscape would get it, and I guess the biggest meat eater of all, of course, is uh, us. That's right. Boron, 180 tonnes. And copper, copper is a good poison, 870 tonnes. And um, zinc is extraordinary, um, 3,400 tonnes. Now those are transfers, when you get to the emissions, uh, in other words what's released into the air, and you look at cyanide, which is uh, I don't know if people realise, but a 2% solution of cyanide, a teaspoonful of a 2% solution of cyanide is enough to kill a human. And it's what Hitler used in the gas chambers. Um, Barrett Gold at Lake Howe last year released 10 tonnes of cyanide. Admit to releasing 10 tonnes of cyanide compounds. Mm. Yeah, that's extraordinary. And what happens um, with a place like Lake Howe, because it's at the bottom of this big source of land, certain temperatures, um, you get an inversion layer. Okay, so, so people the would cloud see. sits over the lake, mm -hmm. and then that forces these emissions to s dissolve back into the water of the lake. You know, it's not it's like they're just going up. It's the wall in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a serious situation, and 
We tried every law we could to try and stop this, but mining companies sit just under the crown when it comes to um, permission. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, so how long are they going to leave the tailings dams there? Forever. They're not going to clean them up at all? No. Nope. Right, and and they're not even going to fill in the pit? You know, they talk about, oh, mines rehabilitate. This mining company is not even going to fill in the pit. And I think at the the moment the depth is 310 metres and I think they want to go to four, over 400 metres deep, getting mm. up towards half a kilometre. So is the rock that's exposed on the side of the pit likely to uh, react with the air and give off arsenic and yeah, stuff as well? Yeah, that's the old rock that gives off arsenic. So when the pit fills up with water when the mine is finished being dug out, then that will likely to be laden with arsenic. Yeah, and, and a lot of other things. Yeah. And everything else that's made And also that, that area is uh, it's very old, it's very fractured, and the tailings dams are not lined. So there's going to be this seepage, whether we like it or not. Mm, and with a 10-year wet and then a 10-year dry, that's probably every 20 years or so that that rock will get re-exposed, even if it's filled up, and do it all over again. Mm. Yes, it's, right. it's a very foolish. <laughs> well, where does uh, where does the uh, water in uh, in Lake Cow go when it's when it's finished being in the lake? Uh, there's another lake further north, Narangkau, flows into that. Then it goes into Nerathong Creek, and then that flows into the Lachlan west of Condoblin. And then there's another creek at the back of the west of the tailings dams called Humbug Creek because that flows both ways. So if the lake's higher than the river. It flows from the lake to the river, whereas if the river's in flood and higher than the lake, it'll flow back the other way. <laughs> so it's called humbug. And um, interestingly, when Barrack Gold, well, before they owned the company, when the EIS was done, before they owned the mine, when the EI environmental impact statement was done, Humbug Creek was left out because if there was a major flood and a breach, it would be Humbug Creek that would carry the pollutants and the toxins it was left out of the EIS and just last week at Ungary there was a massive rainfall and Humbug Creek was in flood so <laughs> the country's changed into its wet cycle mm-hmm. um, and then the the Lachlan flows downstream to what they call the reeds it's a big reed bed it's a groundwater recharge area and in flood time, it flows into the Murrumbidgee. And there was a bit of a standoff a few years ago uh, where they were setting up uh, Mildren, which was the Aboriginal nations belonging to the Murray-Darling Basin. But the Murray-Darling Basin, they were trying to say the Lachlan didn't belong in the Murray-Darling Basin. We go, what do you mean? It's right in the centre. But they were trying to sort of keep us, keep the Lachlan out because they saw it as like a closed system. It's all political. Uh, they saw it as a closed system because it just sort of ended in a recharge area. But that goes into groundwater. And in a flood, it goes into the Murrumbidgee, which flows into the Murray. But that's the sort of insanity of the, the process. Yeah. <laughs> Very bizarre. And the other thing is with groundwater, um, like at North Parks Mine, which is north of Lake Howe, there's no monitoring of how much groundwater the mine's taking out. 
Well, I'm and there's a huge to... loophole with groundwater at the moment. Mm. And when they were doing the Murray Darling Basin inventory, at a certain point in time, they realised they'd counted the groundwater twice. They counted it when it was underground and then when it was on the surface. So they then had to revise their figures for how much water the Murray Darling Basin actually contained. <laughs> Oops. That's a good one. Uh, easy to do, though, I imagine. Um, right, so, yeah, th- this uh, seems like a, an extreme lack of foresight in sort of allowing this sort of thing to go ahead. I think people know. They're just greedy. They just want the money. And um, these companies seem to be able to walk all over Australia and, ar- and around the world, like Barrett Gold's operating in Tanzania. Porgra and Papua New Guinea. In the Andes, they're trying to move a glacier to get at the gold under a glacier. Right, they should be able to just uh, pump a few more tonnes of CO2 out and wait a bit, shouldn't they? And in Porgra, there was uh, a human rights report just recently um, because there the mine is actually in the community. It's up in the highlands in Papua New Guinea. The mine's in the community and there have been many extrajudicial killings and that report came out and when we were in court a few weeks ago our agent said to the barrister who's represented Barrack for years and years and years oh have you read the human rights report about Papua New Guinea Barrack in Porgara oh I only represent Barrack Gold in Australia he goes (laughs) (laughs) because literally they're raping women and um, killing people because the mine's not fenced and when people walk across the area they've been shot i've seen photographs of a 14 year old boy shot in the forehead um not not a good company no no and canadians got a bit to answer for at the moment they uh, also i think the world's leading uh, leading international miner and exporter of asbestos well yes 60 percent of the mines in the world are canadian oh it? really mm. wow yeah yeah well uh does that, does anybody take responsibility for the the poison and the the, the stuff that's left behind at a site like Lake Cow? Well, the community pays. The community pays. Um, we've yet to see what happens. And all the community at, downstream. Yeah, you look at Captain's Flat, and it's going to be the similar setup. Mm. Yeah. Well. Uh, I guess um, there is a, a New Way Summit on. What, what, what is the New Way Summit? Uh, it's basically um, a gathering of Aboriginal people. I, d- I did ask Michael today. I said, people are saying, who can come? He goes, everybody. Everybody needs to know. That was also my old husband's opinion. We, he did that book on sovereignty. It's, it was done in 1987, but it was copy left. We put in it that it had just to be multiplied and got out there. It was nothing about earning money from that one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's pulling together a lot of the thinking about Aboriginal sovereignty so people are articulating it, understanding it. I talked to Barbara Shaw last week and she's going, oh, well, we still don't get it in the Territory. And I'm saying, yeah, but you were saying that 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's time that people are getting to grips with what's happening and just as an example um uh, uncle chappie neville williams is fighting lake cow 
He wrote to the Queen, he wrote to the Governor-General, he wrote to the Governor of New South Wales, the Prime Minister and the Premier of New South Wales. Where do you get your head of power from to rule over Wiradjuri and seize our land? Right, it's a fundamental question. And everybody replied. The Queen sent her response to the Governor-General. The Governor-General told him to go to the National Native Tribunal website. <laughs> <laughs> but the Governor of New South Wales sent it to the um, Attorney-General, Crown Solicitor, and he wrote back and said it all happened at colonisation. So Chappie wrote back and he said, well, if that was the case, he wrote back to the governor, um, if that was the case, where did it happen? When did it happen? Who was present? So she sent that back and said, you know, this is who I've sent it to and this is his address. In other words, if you don't reply, this is the one you've got to go to. But he did reply and his his answer was a, like an obscure act that said it was all recognised, the Submerged Lands Act. And there was another case, um, New South Wales versus Commonwealth. <laughs> <laughs> so Chappie, in in his claim, he said, um, "Well, your claim. Well, what it's done, it's 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 pinpointed New South Wales's position of where their sovereignty lies." And as Chappie put in the claim, um, I consider your claim on sovereignty unconvincing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, everywhere, different nations are doing this uh, across Australia and um, the picture's coming clear for people. Great. So the New Way Summit's sort of uh, bringing together people from across Australia to... Uh to forge a new sort of organisation or just to, and, and to just strategies. To get no, no, it's to form strategies and, and really take this position seriously. And some of these farmers are coming as well who are fantastic. They're coming because they're trying to fight for their land that's getting taken <laughs> that's right. over it's by not mining. Just Aboriginals on the land who get smashed when the environment gets yeah. pulled yeah. out from under you. It's everybody who's there. And that's what Michael said to them. Well, you know, just, just join us, stop fighting us. Just join with us you know so it's going to be um quite interesting i think um, it's very hard for people to travel there are no resources it's unfunded so and it's often hard so for grandmothers to leave home and or people to leave their communities so for some people we're going to skype them in skyping works pretty well these days yeah um there's it's going to be two days at the anu at the hayden allen tank that's that round building near the refractory mm -hmm. and um if if the meeting wants it we'll webcast that um so it goes out and we know last year by the end of the the day last year 600 people were watching the webcast because you can see how many people have clocked in 600 people were watching which is pretty good. And we heard from a German guy that um, all his friends are watching. They just watch the whole thing. From you know, Germany. From Germany. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, 600 people is probably more than you could fit inside the Hayden Allen tank. Well, that's right. only holds 200. Hmm. So it's a way of overcoming the limitation of resources. Um, I believe we're in a world where nothing's private anymore. Everything's under surveillance of these issues sooner or later. So I think the attitude has been... You know, it's not as keep it public. It, it's the truth. We're only dealing with the truth. 
Um, not that Asia is going to go spying on left-wing groups or anything, though. No, that's no, right. No, they no, wouldn't no. do that. We'd never do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, anything else you'd like to uh, add? Well, I suppose there's, uh, there's a need for people to lend a hand with the, uh, the New Way Summit. Absolutely. Um, Winnie Art has taken, who probably a lot of people know, but Winnie Art has um, offered to help feed people. Um, who don't have the resources. If people are coming with resources, well, it'd be nice if they chip in. But um, So I know he's looking for volunteers to help with the catering, um, Winnie Arthur and Kerry. Uh, and if people have got um, produce um, to bring it, or I know he's organising um, the first night, because it starts on the Friday, is curry. So he's getting people to cook curries and then bring them over but maybe we could get him on and he can he can put the details um we also need people to offer to just be drivers Uh, often we have to drive people over to the medical center and pick them up from if they're being billeted or whatever there's always a and even just picking up equipment and all those things. So drivers is a is a really important one. If people have tents they'd like to donate, um, people are obviously going to camp at the embassy. Um, so they're two days at the university and then two days at the embassy. And at the same time, I'll just add this, Anzac Day falls on Easter Monday and there's a lantern vigil on Anzac Eve. I don't know, have you talked to... This? No, no, that's arranged by sort of promoted by Graham Dunstan, and people have been making lanterns. <laughs> I think they're up to 100 or so now. But the idea is with permission to come down Mount Ainsley on the evening before Anzac and um, then be have a vigil that night to tr- begin a new look at the militarisation of Australia and how the psyche is becoming militarised. But it also dovetails with um, having a lot of Aboriginal people in town and the frontier wars have never been properly recognised in this country and I believe that's, in a way, the source of where this denial begins. If you can't except that there were frontier wars <laughs> you can't accept much else and uh, I saw the speech that the um, head of the war memorial gave last Armistice Day and he talked about that frontier war stuff and um, how his researchers have said there was no organised military operations against Aboriginal people and it's this denial which is just atrocious because you've only got to look at the um, British Select Committee papers and they've got a whole chapter called Military Operations Against Aborigines and um, there are plenty of records of what went on and in the Aboriginal history, wherever you go, there's just this terrible killing. Some were military, some were private army, some were police, some were just farmers, landholders... Um, and as my old husband said, the missionaries, um, they tried to Christianise, but they actually kept the people alive. Um, <laughs> and, and in New South Wales, sometimes that was the only refuge for people. So uh, this weekend at Easter is going to be quite profound, I think, because it, it, it can be a way of 
beginning to talk about the frontier wars and I'd like, when we imagine this city, the Anzac Parade at the moment is, in a way, looks like a film strip with sprocket holes. The flower beds are just... <laughs> monocultures that get cut with a chainsaw you know they put a bar across and run a chainsaw to cut them but perhaps one day we could have all the Aboriginal nations represented in that strip by an artwork or whatever symbol chosen may it be done with mosaics or whatever so in the end that whole strip could be the most beautiful thing that you see from the top of Mount Ainsley you'd sit from the parliament and it's a vision I've had for a long time, but we're talking it up now. Um, and hopefully, it might not happen in our generation, but hopefully it will happen so that there is full acknowledgement of the frontier wars and the nations that fought in this country defending their own land. And years ago, in the 80s, my old husband claimed one of those alcoves for those in for those who died in defence of our land. And we've sort of gone on a generation and the theme's back again. But, um, yeah, why not Why not be honest? Why not? Why not, eh? Um, so, yeah, and what, what can people do to help out at uh, Lake Cowell? Um put on some fundraisers <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we've done everything um, off an oily rag we've got big court cases coming up and um, the most constructive thing would be to um, at this point in time we've never sort of really asked that before but this point in time that's where we're up to um, get educated we, there's a website that's growing um, maybe if people want to organise a film night we can come and show films that would be really constructive uh, I think it's important to realise that it's on our doorstep when the big dust storms come as they do out in that country that dust blows right well, across it's almost directly <laughs> northwest from here isn't it yes yeah yes. only four hours away yeah yeah yes and lobby lobby government find out why these things are allowed to continue and the expansion is uh, the main one to stop um we're in court over that at the moment we stopped the main one it was called e42 and then the mining company splits up the expansion in modification six seven eight nine and we're up to about modification 10 and 11 <laughs> i think um but yeah just just educate yourself and start being active um, mm. Chappies, Chappies held the fort for a long time. We we're all a bit <laughs> wounded and weary at the moment. It'd be bet, nice I to bet. have some new energy coming on board. Yeah. Well, if you could, I'd like you to just leave us with uh, a picture of, of the lake at the moment and what, what uh, water birds and stuff might be there now. Yes. Uh, it's. I flew over it a while ago. Um, it's probably 100% full right now that Humbug Creek has flooded. Uh, the main movement of birds comes in around September, but I was out there a while ago and these beautiful little stilts were there. Um, there are always emus there. The water birds are coming in and the country the country's just transforms. 
Great. Well, if there's nothing else you'd like to add. I think that's enough. Thank you, Thank you, you very much, Ellie Gilbert. Thank you, Scotty. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.